Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, glad you are with us today. Thanks for I think it's a time out of your weekend to join us, especially if it's your first time. Uh, maybe your first time in a long time. Anybody else excited to be here today? It's like excited. I don't know. I was excited. Know well, what it is, man. Maybe it was that, that sprinkled donut. Just tasted better this morning and extra sugar in that thing. I don't know, but I'm just glad that you were here. I'm so excited to be here with you as well. Um, a couple of things I want to point out real fast before we dive into the message. Uh, there's two tables outside in the foyer that you need to make sure you stop by on the way out. Uh, one is our blood drive. Joe Gothier is leading a blood drive. It actually is tomorrow. We have a bunch of spots open. Haven't had the response we'd like to so far. So can you remedy that for us? Can you go on, uh, on that table? couple of forms out there just filling a little half an hour, one hour time slot. We'd love to make that blood drive a huge success. And then second, uh, Caitlin Morrison, she is doing a mission trip starting here in a couple of weeks. Uh, so she's trying to raise some funds for this mission trip, nine-month mission trip uh, with World Race. We love when our teens uh, spread their wings and fly in that way, demonstrate and express their faith in that way. So can you help us raise some money for her? She's selling t-shirts. Next week's going to be baked goods. So uh, be on the lookout for what Caitlin's selling and make sure that you buy a lot of it. All right? Also, I want to brag on somebody. I don't know if she's here right now, but is Ellie Shane here right now? No, she's not. Okay, she's still sleeping. She had a long night. Uh, last night, Ellie performed a really cool little coffee house outdoor venue at Nella's Yogurt, and it was an incredible event. We got to see this lady named Ellie Shane, this girl, Ellie Shane, for free last night at a yogurt shop. There is going to come a day when you have to pay $100 to see her at Pepsi Center. I guarantee you. She is incredible. So if you know Ellie Shane or see her, congratulate her on a big performance last night. Let her know that you're proud of her and that God's got huge things uh, in store for her. What a cool night that was. Hey, if you've been away the last couple of weeks or if you're joining us for the very first time, uh, we're in the middle of a summer sermon series. Say that five times fast. Uh, entitled Numbers. Hashtag but not numbers. Uh, here's the gist. There are a lot of important numbers out there. Your driver's license number, credit card number, uh, your GPA, the date of your anniversary, the ages of your kids, right? Important numbers to know. But those numbers, as important as they are, fail in comparison to the importance of numbers like these. These little chapter-verse combinations, 316, 2911, 11, 23, 1, right? These numbers should be the most important numbers in our entire life because these numbers actually point to profound truth that will truly shape, change, and give us life. And so I, I encourage you to know those other numbers. important to memorize a few of those numbers. But I also want you to really know and memorize these numbers, these biblical numbers, because we really believe they will bring you life. This morning I'm excited to share with you the numbers 211, John 211, which nobody guessed, by the way. So it looks like pastors getting a couple of uh, sweet teas this week from Chick-fil-A. Uh, every week we have you guess. If you guess correctly, you get a gift card. And if not, I spend the gift card. So thank you, church. I've stumped you twice now. I'm having a good summer. Good run, John. I'm loving this so far. Hey, let me pray for us. And uh, then we'll dive into it. I'm actually going to say a prayer. And after each line, I would love for you to repeat what I just said. All right? Father God. We believe that your son, Jesus, is the way, and we want to know the way. We believe he is the truth, and we want to know the truth. We believe he is the life, and we want life. So make it so now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for that. Church, have you ever uh, run out of something? 
Maybe you ran out of gas when you were on your way to an important event one time. Uh, maybe you ran out of ink one morning when your huge research paper was due several hours later. Uh, maybe you ran out of milk or butter or flour one time when you were three-fourths of the way through a recipe or when company was coming in just a couple of hours. Uh, maybe you ran out of toilet paper at the most inopportune moment. I don't know why I've been using potty jokes the last couple of weeks. I just have, sorry. Dirty mind. Anyway. If any of these things have ever happened to you, you know that it's can be, it can be a little frustrating, a little embarrassing. These tend to happen in moments when you really don't want them or need for them to happen. Uh, it can feel, make you feel silly. You could even look silly in some of these situations. We don't want to, and we should never run out of something very important in critical moments, right? In front of critical, important people. And that's exactly what happened in the story I want to share with you today in John chapter 2. This morning I want to share with you uh, one of the most famous shortage stories in all the Bible, maybe even in all the world. It begins when something runs out, and it ends when people's cups are literally running over. Let me share the story with you now. John 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and the cheaper wine after the guests have all had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Cana of Galilee is a small little village, about three and a half miles outside the town of Nazareth, another small little village. And in this small village, we read that an amazing thing was happening. An important event was going on. A wedding was taking place. And in a small town like that, if you grew up in a small town, you know that when something exciting is happening over here, everybody goes. Because not much else exciting is happening anywhere else. So I imagine everyone from the town was present at this wedding. We also learned that people from other towns and villages were present at this wedding. Jesus was there along with some of his disciples. Side note, Jesus was the kind of guy you invited to a party. Side note, Jesus was the kind of guy who liked to be at a party. I think we need to recapture that, church. Amen? He was a party goer. He was a party kind of guy. I love that about our God. All right, back to our story. A bunch of people are there at this wedding, including one very important person. The text says, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, Mary is there because some scholars believe that this wedding was actually for her niece. And so because it was a family member getting married, Mary was in charge of a couple of different things here at the wedding. She was responsible, maybe for the, the, the ceremony itself. Maybe she was responsible for the entire reception. She was like the wedding coordinator. And that would have been a big job because the reception, wow, that was, that was a huge undertaking. I've mentioned this to you multiple times already, but weddings back in the first century, they were a big deal. The whole say yes to the dress phenomenon now or my million dollar wedding, whatever those shows are, nothing in comparison to first century. 
See, in the first century, a wedding began not so much with the ceremony. It actually began with a huge feast. Everybody would just stuff their face and have their fill. Then only after you had eaten would you actually enter into the ceremony and the vows part. I say we bring that back today. Anybody with me? I mean, I would be much happier at a wedding if I just stuffed my face full of, like, chocolate-covered strawberries and pork tenderloin. Amen? Like, you guys do whatever you want up there. I'm good. I'm good. So then after everybody ate, then you'd move into the ceremony part. And then after the ceremony, man, things got kind of crazy. The couple would literally be, be paraded around the town on the longest route possible underneath this canopy thing. They would have a, a, um, a crowns placed on their heads and the entire city as they walked by would applaud them and give them gifts. Maybe we should bring that back too, huh? Now after the parade, you would think, that was quite an event. I'm tired. Let's go, let's go to sleep. No, no, the party was just getting started. So after the initial feast and, and, and then and the ceremony and, and the parade, after all of that happened, then the bride and groom, they, they wouldn't just take off in grandpa's old hot rod. They wouldn't go on their honeymoon. They would literally open up their home for a party. The party would last seven days. And every single person would be invited from the village, family members who couldn't make it to the ceremony itself. Now, I don't suggest we bring that back. But can you imagine? I mean, what a what a party this would have been, a week-long celebration in honor of this wedding and this moment and God's goodness and God's faithfulness in this young couple. See, in a life and in a world filled with so much pain, with so much heartache, with so much struggle, this wedding was this bright spot. This week was this important moment for everybody in the village. It meant so much to so many for so many different reasons. And it's during this week-long celebration, we're not exactly sure what day of the seven days it happens, but something horrible goes down. They ran out of wine. And everybody gasped. <gasps> Do it with me now. <gasps> I mean, come on, wine connoisseurs, you know, the bottom of the bottle, not a good thing, right? It's a disappointment to say the least. But what happened here goes much deeper than just running out of a, a nice glass of wine. See, two things were of utmost importance back in the, uh, the first century. First is hospitality. Hospitality was a big deal. It was, it was actually a sacred duty. It was almost a religious exercise. It was one of the ways you honored the Lord and, and you served others. Your desire, your willingness to open up your home, to invite others into it, it was a way you lived out these words. It was a way you loved God and loved others. Hospitality was a huge deal. Another huge deal was wine. Now, here's why. Because in a culture where water is hard to come by, if not unsanitary, wine is a necessary element. It's a necessary provision for your guests. The rabbis of the day even had a statement. Without wine, there is no joy. Now, before you say amen to that, <laughs> it's far more than just a nice, relaxing beverage. Wine truly represented God's favor, God's provision. Wine is symbolic of God's peace, God's blessing, God's delight. And think about God's people and their connection to wine, the Passover feast, all the religious festivals throughout the years. I mean, wine is a big deal in this culture. So running out of wine, especially at a wedding feast, it was devastating. Because it was as if you were saying God's peace, God's blessing, God's delight, they are no longer present in this moment. God's peace and God's blessing and God's delight, they have literally run out on this family. Yeah, you wouldn't want that to happen. You wouldn't want that to be said for your wedding, for your family. So Mary, 
maybe in charge of the entire reception, comes over to Jesus and she explains what's happened. They have no more wine, she says. It's as if she's saying this party, this celebration, this this family's honor, it's on the line, Jesus. And he would know that. He would know exactly what she means by that statement. So his response seems a little odd, doesn't it? Literal translation says this, woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour has not yet come. Now, at first glance, this response seems a little rude, does it not, moms? I can imagine Mary giving him the mom look after hearing this. Woman? Excuse me? You will do exactly what I tell you to, Sonny. I don't care if you're God. I'm your mama. And she grabs his ear, pulls him over, right? But the words of Jesus, they aren't meant to be disrespectful. Jesus isn't saying, woman, back off. I can't do anything right now. I don't want to do anything. This doesn't involve me. The time's not right. It's not as if Jesus is is angered by this statement. He doesn't give in because his mom is making him. He doesn't begrudgingly start his ministry, even though he didn't want to in this moment. What Jesus said is actually a very um, common phrase that was said in the first century, and it could be said in a a kind of a disrespectful way, but it could also be said kind of in a tongue-in-cheek kind of way, and that's how I think Jesus was saying it. He's not saying, woman, back off. This is what I think the literal translation would mean. Don't worry, ma'am. Leave things to me. I will take care of it, though the time isn't right, or I will take care of it when the time is right. It's as if he's saying, ma'am, why are you coming to me right now with this problem? Do you think I can do something about it? Hear the little tongue-in-cheek statement in there? Why are you coming to me, mom? Do you honestly think that I have the power, ability, and desire to do something about it? And what does Mary say? Yep, do what he says, right? And boy, does he do something incredible. Six huge containers of water transformed into the best tasting wine you've ever had. Now, we have to understand is that, that this is Jesus' very first Miracle. That's why I brought up the numbers 211 to you. This is the very first sign, John says, the first time Jesus puts his glory on display. And I don't know about you, but you never get a second chance to make a first impression. So if I was going to start my ministry, if I'm going public with this whole thing, this is the first time I'm going to show you I'm the Lord of heaven and earth, I'm going big. Like I'm going to part the skies above the, 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 this young couple. Sign, the sun's going to shine right down on them. I'm going to rain down diamonds on the couple. Right? But here's Jesus. I mean, his very first miracle. He's in some small little town nobody cares about, at a wedding that eh, no one really cares about. And he's doing something that seems somewhat insignificant, right? It's, it's not that inspiring. Water to wine, I mean, that's cool. But you just, you're coming out of a gate as a bartender? Like, really? That's how you want to lead this thing? That's the first impression you want to give? What we need to understand is that beneath this seemingly simple story, this seemingly insignificant miracle, is a much deeper meaning that applies directly to all of us. This story doesn't describe what Jesus did one time. It describes what Jesus is capable of doing all the time. It tells us not what Jesus did for them on that day, but what Jesus wants to do for all of us today. So let me quickly point out to you three takeaways from this great story. Takeaway number one, your joy is a big deal to Jesus, especially at home and especially within your family. Now, I've hinted at this already, but let me say it again. At this wedding, if the wine were to run out, 
The joy of the family, the joy of that couple, the joy of all the guests would literally run out. If the host of the reception ran out of provisions, if they failed to treat the bride and groom or the invited guests with proper respect, if they were unprepared, if they were ill-prepared, they would have experienced tremendous shame, tremendous guilt, tremendous embarrassment. This moment that is designed and meant to be filled and cloaked with joy would have been filled and cloaked with regret and pain. And if you've ever hosted a party before, you kind of know the feeling. If you've ever hosted a party, especially when food started to run out but the line did not, then you know how embarrassing this can be. I've literally been at a party or two where the food ran out, there were still guests in line, so the host runs inside, taking out leftovers from their fridge, right? Defrosting things from the freezer. Like, here, here, I'm so sorry, you can eat all of this. Magnify that a hundred times and you kind of understand the embarrassment, the feeling, the emotion of this moment. It's happening to this couple today. And of all the days, their wedding day. Embarrassment, regret, shame. So Jesus doesn't do this miracle for the guest's sake. He could care less if you have enough to drink or enough to eat. He doesn't do this miracle for the disciples' sake. He doesn't, he's not really interested in, in promoting himself or making him look like a big deal in, front, in, in their eyes. He's not doing it for his sake. He's not trying to push his own name or his own glory. He does this miracle for the bride and groom's sake. He does it for joy's sake. And not the character from inside out. But he does it for joy. He does all of this because joy is the most important thing in that moment. And joy is what, that, what Jesus wants that couple to experience in that moment. And so Jesus goes out of his way to fight for their joy, to ensure their joy. Don't you love that? That the God of the universe, the one who rules over all the nations, the God who calls the stars by, by name, Every single night, the God who tells the ocean, you can only come this far, the God who holds time and space in his hands, that God, the God of the universe, kind of big deal God, he cares about you and your joy. He is willing to step up and step out so you can be filled with joy. And he will go out of his way to ensure that nothing and no one robs you or steals from you the joy that is rightfully yours in the Lord. Isaiah 51.1, those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. Don't you love that language? I mean, it's describing the scene of John chapter 2, the young couple being crowned, people coming in, a new family being created. And guess what? Joy is going to be the dominating emotion in that moment. And Jesus is going to guarantee it. John 15, 10, if you keep my commands, Jesus said, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you. My joy, Jesus says, yes, he is a very joyful Jesus, his joy, he wants to be in you, and he wants that joy to be made complete. That's why he came. That's why he spoke. That's why he ministered. So you would have his joy in you, and you'd have it in a complete way. I love Psalm 45, 15. We will be led in with joy and gladness. They enter the palace of the king in that way. See, one of God's greatest desires, 
one of his greatest hopes for you, one of his highest priorities, one of the things he cares most about is that you and I would live in the fullness of his joy. And don't, don't get all spiritual with me and over-spiritualize just like, well, joy doesn't really mean happiness. Yes, it does. Joy means happiness, excitement, delight. He wants that from his people. Why are we so somber? Why are we so serious? Why are we so sad? His people should be jam-packed with joy. And he's going to fight for it. He wants that so badly for us, he's going to go out of his way to ensure that it happens. So this story, this little seemingly insignificant story about water into wine, it's not about water into wine. It's about embarrassment into exhilaration. It's about boredom or burden into blessing. It's about ho-hum into how in the world? It's about emptiness that many of us feel turning into excitement. It's about that which is dull or flat or empty turning into that which is vivid and wonderful and joyful. See, what Jesus did for that water is what Jesus wants to do for all of us in each of our lives. And I think he wants to do it in our homes and in our families. He wants to fill us with joy. He wants us to experience joy. And again, in the immediate context of our immediate family, excuse me. He wants to move us from normal or empty or embarrassed or on the verge to fully alive, to our best selves. And he wants that for your family and he wants that for your home. Now for some of you, your home is not a place of joy. And that's a problem for a lot of reasons. And it that probably happened for a lot of reasons, but, but here's the thing. That's where God has designed for joy to start, for joy to resonate, for joy to be the foundation. The home and the family is where joy should be flowing freely. God doesn't want your home to be a place of mourning or sadness. He doesn't want your home to be marked by shame or embarrassment or guilt or neglect or hurt or anger. He doesn't want your home to just be nice or clean or remodeled. He wants your home to be jam-packed with joy. That's what he's telling this young couple. You are to live for the rest of your life as a married couple. You are to have your home forever and always, beginning this moment, be filled with joy. And I'm the God who's going to make it happen for you. God is committed to our joy. I just wonder, are we committed to joy? Are we committed to living in a way, to building our homes, to interacting with our families in such a way where joy Joy, joy is, is the dominant emotion, the dominant atmosphere. I read something powerful this past week. It says this, a religion or relationship with Jesus which does not change our home life and make us more thoughtful or joyful or unselfish in that space, that is highly suspect in my opinion. I love that phrase, that, that, that statement. I think it's so true. I mean, I kid you not, church, after, after a Sunday here, let's just say this. I know a guy, okay, a minister, who after services on Sunday will see people in the parking lot yelling at each other, seeing couples at one another, right? See families kind of tearing into each other. And my friend is like, what are you thinking? Why would you, why would you interact that way immediately after you just left this space? Where is the disconnect? You just came to God's house to be filled with his joy. And now he wants you to take it into your house. But for some reason, you're not. 
So if you're going to yell or scream at one another, would you go do it at Walmart parking lot? Okay, just act really friendly out here. Take that somewhere else. Like just fake me for a little while, fool me, whatever. But do you see the problem? If your relationship with Jesus doesn't transform your relationship with your family, doesn't transform your home, doesn't fill that space with joy, something's wrong. Something's off. And why is it, church, that we're so happy on other people, but the moment we come home, we turn into a crab or a jerk or worse? Why is it that we give our very best to other people or other things, hobbies, activities, sports, neighbors, whatever, but we give our worst, our leftovers to our family? I've got a friend whose wife could be yelling at him and so upset with him. Then a friend calls on the cell phone, Sally, hello. It's so good to hear you. I'm not finished with you. Right? Come on, guys. I know you don't want to say amen to that, but after service, you can come back, give me a little nod and tell me you agree. But why is it? Why is it that we can be so happy with other people and put on this kind of happy, joyful front or face and at home, at home, we're not, we're not very happy at all. And I'm talking to everybody here. Right? I'm talking to spouses, right, one to another. I'm talking parents to kids. I'm talking kids to your parents. Why do we give our family our worst? Why, why don't we want our home just to be overflowing with joy? That's how God designed it to be. That's how God wants it to be. And God is committed to that. So how joyful is your family? If you had a spectrum or a scale here of, of, of one over here being a, a house that's it's running out, you're about, you're about uh, done with the wine over here. It's running empty. If, does that describe your family, the level of joy you experience at home? Or are you a family over here? Man, we are overflowing with joy. I imagine most of us are over here. And so we gotta fix that. There's a problem that we gotta fix. That brings us to our, our second key takeaway. Takeaway number two, moving from shortage to surplus only happens through Jesus. That's it. I love that in the story, once Mary learned of this, maybe she was told, maybe she noticed it, maybe she drank the last cup, like, oh no. Once she learned they were out of wine, she went immediately to Jesus. She did not ask the head waiter for help. She didn't go around asking other people for help. She didn't say, you know what, let me just kind of sit down for a second and see if I can process or brainstorm some ideas. She went immediately to Jesus. Why? Because she instinctively knew that Jesus would help. Jesus could help. I mean, I doubt at this point, Mary fully understood who Jesus was or what he was capable of, but she knew that if Jesus were involved, it would be better. Things would be fixed. You see, many believe that Jesus' father, Joseph, that he died early in Jesus' life. That's true for several reasons. One is there's no mention of him after a couple of the younger stories about Jesus. You never hear about Joseph again. And then when Jesus dies on the cross, one of the last things he says is to his disciples, would you take care of my mom? Why? Because she's probably a widow. So Joseph has been gone maybe for years. So Mary and Jesus had this dynamic relationship. He's been the man of the house for so many years. He's come through on so many different things. He has, he's stepped up when nobody else would, and he has helped Mary out. And, and off of that relationship, off of that great experience with Jesus, she comes to him now and she says, would you help them out? You've helped me out so many times, Jesus. Would you help them out? Because I know you can. And boy, does he ever. The text tells us there's these six huge jars full of water. It says it can hold 20 to 30 gallons per. 
We actually have kind of one of these jars next door in the chapel. I was going to bring it over here, but you see this? It was not capable. Um, so maybe next week I'll bring it up here on stage. Humongous. I mean, four feet tall, round as a, you know, you can put your arms around. It's huge. I did a little math. I'm not great with math anymore, but, but you know, six times 30, carry the two, add the four, 180 gallons of wine. To put that in perspective, that's 900 bottles of wine. Now, I don't care what kind of party you're having. You ain't going to finish off 900 bottles of wine. But you see, with Jesus, you move from shortage to surplus. With Jesus, you don't go to just having barely enough. You go to having more than enough. That's why he goes so big. And John, I think, is telling his audience, the original audience, which is a Greek audience, by the way. He's telling them, oh yeah, Greeks, you have a God called Dionysus. Dionysus is the god of wine. And there are folklores and stories out there about Dionysus doing what? Turning water into wine. Well, I'm here to tell you, the thing that you hope for from your gods, the thing that you've made up about your gods, it's true in my God. Jesus can do what you only speculate other gods doing. And he did it at this wedding. And so if you are in a shortage in your life, then you've got to come to Jesus You've got to reach out to, cry out to Jesus because he is the only one who can move somebody from shortage to surplus. And that truth applies today. A lot of you, I know this to be true, you're running low. You are running on empty. That could be true for your finances or maybe even your faith. That could be true with your patience level or maybe your purity level. That could be true of your commitment or conviction, your time or your temperament. But like that wedding feast, you're about to run out of a certain commodity. That's why we're so stressed out. We don't feel like we have enough time. We're running out of time. And so we get stressed out. That's why we're so angry at home. We don't feel like we have enough support or that we're shown enough appreciation. We're running low on those things. That's why we seek a quick fix of some sort, addictions, because we don't have enough peace or personal time or pleasure. We don't have enough of something. We're running low on something, and so we turn to all these other things. Chances are you're experiencing right now a scarcity in your life, a scarcity of love, a scarcity of intimacy, a scarcity of peace, a scarcity of resources, a scarcity of time, a scarcity of joy. And you either aren't doing anything about it, or you're doing everything except coming to Jesus with it. You with me? You can ask everybody else to turn your scarcity into surplus. It will not work. Not him, not her, not that, not this. You've got to come to Jesus with your scarcity. If you do not have enough of something that you desperately need, Jesus is the only one who's going to give you more than you could even ask for. Many of you have yet to experience how unbelievably sufficient Jesus is because you refuse to give him your scarcity. You refuse to come to him and say, I don't have a whole lot of energy anymore, God. I'm running out of belief. I don't even know if I believe in this stuff anymore. Lord, I don't even have any emotion, any, any positive emotion towards my family anymore. I don't have any desire to get up and go to work anymore. I'm running low in this area of my life, and Jesus, I'm coming to you right now. Would you help me out? That's what I want your prayer to be this week. If you're running low, run to him. 
like Mary did. Key takeaway number three, I don't want you just to do what Mary did, though. I want you to do what Mary said. Takeaway number three, miracles still happen for those who obey the words of Jesus. Jesus tells Mary that he's going to handle it. And let's say even if he said it in kind of a weird way or a disrespectful way, she believed him or she trusted him or she knew he was going to come through on it. What does she tell the servants? Do whatever he tells you to do. Do what Jesus says. I cannot, as a pastor, give you any better advice than that. Do whatever Jesus told you to do. Jesus' miraculous powers are available to you. He wants them to break out in and through you. And yet he needs you to obey him. He is looking for you not to just sit back and watch him do something miraculous. He wants you to partner with him He wants to move you into the miraculous. He wants to do this miraculous thing in you, through you, and not just for you. See, in this story, Jesus is the one, all the glory goes to him. It's his power. Nobody else helps out in any way, except there is this little element where he doesn't do it alone. He doesn't do it in in a little box. He doesn't do it secretly. He asks others to be involved. He says, I'm going to do the miraculous. I'm going to bring joy in this moment. I'm going to show you I'm the God of surplus but I need you to do something for me, servants. Go grab those really heavy jars, maybe go down to the river or over to the well, fill them up with water, take them over. See, there's there's certain steps that had to be obeyed for the miraculous to come about. And the same is true today. Some of you right now are stuck or running empty or joyless because you just, you're not obeying Jesus. And I, I just can't say it any other way. You're not doing what he asked you to do. When Jesus says to you things like, forgive others, even that guy, he's serious about that. When he says, serve others, like even that girl, he's serious about that. When he says, deny yourself, when he says, rest, when he says, give, when he says, serve, when he says, be pure, when he says, die to self, he's not just giving you busy work. He's not just filling up space in the book. He's telling you something to do. Servants, go do this for me so I can do something for you. You with me, church? Obedience is part of the miraculous, and the miraculous still happens for those who are obedient. He still wants to move. He still wants to change things. He still wants to blow you away. That's why I love this story, right? The head waiter uh, gets a glass of the wine, and he's like blown away. Why? Where'd this come from? I can't even believe he goes to the groom. You're so amazing. You did this. And I imagine the servants are in the back like, dude has no idea. He's got no clue. Jesus is the one who did that. And he didn't just bring good wine on his cart. He made it out of water. I saw it. I poured the water in the basin, in the container. I carried the container over to the wedding. I put the container in front of you, head waiter, and I saw you dip it in, and when you took it out, it was wine. I saw that. I was part of that. Why? Because I was obedient to what Jesus said. I just did what he asked. And I got a special glimpse into God's glory. And the same is true for us, church. You want to see God's glory? Obey. And if you're not sure exactly what he said to you, pick up this little book, turn to the the red letters in it, start reading, and start assuming he's talking to you. Because he is. Obey him and watch the miraculous happen in your own life. So if you want to be filled with joy, if you want your home to be marked by joy, 
If you want to move in your life from a place of shortage, whatever that might be, to a place of surplus, then obey. Obey Jesus. Do what he asks you to do. And watch him do something that only he can do. Guys, don't let what happened in your car that day on the way to the event happen in your life. Don't let what happened that day when you were baking and ran out of flour or milk or whatever, don't let that happen in your spirit. Don't let what happened to you in the, in the bathroom that one time running out of toilet paper, don't let that happen in your relationship to the Lord. If you're running low, if you're about to run out, Jesus and Jesus Christ alone is the only way you'll be filled back up. I hope and pray that John 2 encourages you. And as chapter or verse 11 finishes, states out, uh, or finishes out, sorry, I'm just mixing things. Many believed because of what happened there. I hope that many of you will believe as well. Not only because of what happened in this moment, because of what might happen in the moments to come for you. Let me pray that over you and we'll get you out of here. God, you are such an incredible God and we thank you for this story. Not because it's just a great thing to read and, and kind of fills us up with a little excitement and then we go out on our way. No, Lord, because this story is teaching us about you. It's teaching us about your son is teaching us about your desire for each and every one of us, God. Your desire is that we would be marked by joy, that we would live in and live out the fullness of your joy, Father God. Why do we think you're an angry cosmic deity who's frustrated or stoic or far removed? You are full of joy, happiness, delight. And God, you wanna share that with us. You want us to live in that. And so help us, God, to be joyful people, to realize that our homes should be places of great joy, why are we so stressed out at home? Why are we so mad at home? Why are we, why are we at each other at home? May we be people of joy at home. May our homes and our families be marked by your joy, God. And Lord, many of us, that's not true because we're empty. We're short on something. Time, patience, resources, Love, intimacy, whatever it might be, God, we're short on something and we're trying to fill that void or trying to find it anywhere else. Would we just come to you this week? I pray that hundreds and hundreds of people from West Bowles Church this week cry out to you and say, Lord, would you do something about my shortage? Would you do something about my lack thereof? Because only you can. And would you blow them away this week, God? Those who are sad, would they be so happy this week? Those who are angry, would they, be, would they experience so much peace this week? Those who are alone, would they experience so much community this week? Be the God of surplus in every person's life in this room. Move them from scarcity to a very different place. And Lord, we pray that our piece of the puzzle, that we'd be committed to that as well, that we'd be faithful to our end of the deal, that we would be obedient to your words. You are asking us to do simple things. You're asking us to just, to walk with you, to trust you, to follow you, and to carry certain tasks out for you, God. And what you're trying to do there, Lord, is not keep us busy. You're trying, to, you're trying to move us into the miraculous. You're trying to say, I'm about to blow your socks off. Would you just go fill the jugs with water, please? Would we be humble and obedient to your word this week? Make it so. Make it so, Jesus. You are the only God who can do this. We don't turn to Dionysus. We don't turn to ourselves. We don't turn to the head waiter. We don't, we don't turn to anybody else. We turn to you. You are the God of joy. You are the God of surplus. You are the God who asks for our obedience. Would we follow you, God, this week? Make it so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.